Could having a better credit rating actually make your mortgage more expensive? We're going to get into that on this week's episode of Check Your Balance and stick around. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Good to be back, Dan. It is great to be back as always. We are here for another week and we've got a couple different topics today. One of which I was surprised and honestly a little embarrassed I didn't know about until recently. But we're going to start with the mortgage market. I think you and I follow some of the same accounts on social media. And a couple of weeks back, I started seeing this flurry of activity that was basically stating if you've got a good credit rating that you're going to pay more for mortgages. You are going to subsidize poor credit borrowers in the mortgage market, which I think I immediately sent to you and said, what's going on here? Is this real? And then we had to dig into it. So Dan, can you tell us what's going on in this space? Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the memes that were appearing all over social media. So the, the snapshot you sent me was from an account called Wall Street Bets. The headline says the White House decided to penalize people for good credit and reward others for bad credit. And there was a picture of a screen that was showing the news, and it talks about how someone with a 620 FICO score gets a 1.75% fee discount on their mortgage, while someone with a 740 FICO score pays a 1% fee. So that's a gap of 2.75 between the creditworthy borrower and the riskier, lower credit borrower. You sent that to me. I, in turn, sent that directly to my contact in the mortgage space, asking simply, is this a thing? To which he surprisingly replied, yes. Now, it's not a thing the way it was packaged and presented on social media. So I think it's worth unpacking because if we saw this all over, the likelihood is that some of you have seen this too. So let's try to dig into exactly what that means. So first, to lay things out clearly, there has been a change that at the end of the day will increase mortgage costs to higher credit borrowers and decrease costs to lower credit borrowers. Now, it doesn't mean that someone with higher credit is going to pay a higher rate on a loan than someone with lower credit. But what this impacts is some internal pricing of the loan that is referred to loan level price adjustments, LLPAs, that are imposed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to price loans. These have existed for a long time. They made a change earlier in the year that just kind of hit the news more recently. Maybe they had a quiet week and decided it was time to to publicize this. So the LLPA is basically the factors that affect your interest rate. Right. It, is, isn't that essentially what we're talking about here? I, I realize it's a little bit more complicated than that, but the LLPA is basically what they're going to look at when they say, you've got X credit, you, you're going to put this much down payment down, you're going to buy this type of property. Is it a single family home? Is it a condo? Is it a multifamily unit? Is it a rental? 
or, or an investment property. They're going to take all of those factors of what are you buying, who are you, and how are you buying it, and that gets baked into what you pay in interest. Right, exactly. Whether it's a cash out refi or a purchase, all of these things are going to impact the pricing of the loan. And imagine a matrix, and this is exactly how it shows on the article that that the lender sent me. On one side, you have the FICO scores running from best credit score down to the worst credit score at the bottom. And then across the top, you have a loan to value because that's going to impact the pricing of the loan too. How risky is this loan? How much equity are you going to have in the property after you make the purchase? And with each sell, there's an adjustment to the price based on those two factors. And what this change has done is increase the price adjustment for people with higher credit and decrease the price adjustment for people with lower credit with the goal of making housing more affordable, kind of trying to help lower income individuals, which isn't necessarily directly correlated to credit score. But I think that was ultimately the goal that they were trying to accomplish here. Well, yeah, and I think that they're trying to work on the affordability because the housing market's been slow, right? And and so there's kind of this theme that people are talking about, which is, you know, a number of people that would be in the housing market simply can't afford their payments because you've had kind of two things. You've had a run-up in prices over the past handful of years, which is partially being caused by low inventory. And then you've also got this huge increase in interest rates. And so your buying power, your cost on a mortgage even to buy the same amount of home has really meaningfully changed in the last year or so with the interest rate situation. So you've kind of got a double whammy going for somebody that is a first-time home buyer trying to enter the market. And so you've got a lot of Americans that are going, well, yeah, I've got a sub 4% loan. Why would I ever leave my house if I've got such cheap debt? And that that's what they're trying to help with is leveling that playing field a little bit. Yeah, guilty as charged. I mean, that certainly influenced my personal decision to stay in my house for longer. It's influenced it for a lot of our clients. I think we have that conversation all the time. And it it both influences whether I think you should be paying down aggressively against your mortgage or letting it ride for as long as you possibly can, which you know, I, I think if you've got a very, very cheap mortgage, I don't see a reason to pay off, especially now that you've got savings accounts making four plus percent. If you've got a sub 4% mortgage, why would you pay that down really quickly? Again, I know some people feel really strongly about paying off their debt and it just bothers them to owe anybody anything. But as somebody that's got a 2.5% car loan right now and enough cash that I could pay it off, I won't. Uh, and, and for the same reason, I would continue to hold mortgage debt uh, that's, that's very inexpensive. Yeah. So to put a bow on this change that that's happening with the price adjustments on mortgages, the adjustments for people with lower credit is still higher than the adjustments for people with better credit. The the gap has just narrowed. So in a sense, creditworthy borrowers are subsidizing less creditworthy borrowers, but you are still rewarded for having good credit. You are not paying more on your mortgage than someone with lower credit than you are. Don't skip credit card payments. Don't try to screw up your credit to try to get cheaper mortgage rates because it simply does not work like that. I appreciate that, Dan. Thank you for clarifying that. So yeah, if you see those headlines, those are a little bit misleading. By that, I mean a lot misleading. Staying in the mortgage market for just a moment, Dan, let's talk about extending that time that you're going to pay back a loan. Are we talking about 40-year-long mortgages? 
Instagram was. I know I saw it all over Instagram a couple of weeks ago around the same time this uh, other thing appeared. If I, and being the person I am, I just said this, right? I would extend really low interest debt as long as I possibly could. If you could let me take out a mortgage at two and a half percent, I would keep it perpetual. I would pay that interest rate forever and never pay the loan off if they would let me. But 40-year mortgages, that's getting a lot of ink right now. What's going on in that space? Yeah. So again, everyone was talking about how ridiculous it was that in a time where a lot of people are in a financial bind, that you would kind of put people into debt for longer by approving 40-year mortgages. Again, that's not really what's happening. What's happened is that some of these agencies are now allowing 40-year loan modifications for people who are having trouble meeting their standard payment options. So if you're in financial distress, there's a potential to stretch out your payments over a longer period of time to try to help you meet those payments. But there is not a new approved 40-year mortgage from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That's that's just not what's happening. However, apparently you can get a 40-year mortgage if you really wanted to. That does sound intriguing. And obviously, we've seen this in the car market as well. As car prices have continued to go up, where I think years ago, it used to be the standard was a 36-month, which is three years, or a 48-month car loan. You're seeing five, six, sometimes even seven-year car loans. That's an uncomfortable amount of time for me to think about borrowing money for a car. But in theory, as prices go up, stretching the amount of time that you're going to make that payment should bring the payment down. Now, the result of that is that you're going to pay a metric ton more in interest the longer and longer you stretch that loan out. And so I think the initial reaction to that was that that's a really dumb thing to be offering people and is going to make the total cost of homeownership way more expensive. But as we know, most people are focused on their cash flow. And and so I think there are people that would consider that idea. Does the 40-year mortgage exist not just as an adjustment to an existing loan? Yeah, it it does. So uh, we found that you can get a 40-year loan in the private markets, but it is a non-conforming loan, which means that it's not going to meet the standards of a lot of agencies to be purchased off the books of these lenders, can't be packaged into nice securities like a lot of these other loans. So that might impact the rate you're paying and the terms on the loan as well. So you do want to be careful if you're taking on something like that. And I'll just say that one of the major concerns I would have about a 40-year loan is while I'm cash flow conscious, I'm also aware that most people don't stay in their home for 40 years. I think you you normally stay in your home for something like five to seven years, if I'm not mistaken. And if you have a 40-year loan, you're not going to build a ton of equity in that home over that period of time. So if you're going to be looking to sell your home now you're much more at risk to the fluctuations in the housing market because you not might not be able to get the price you want out of your home after only a few years of paying a 40-year note. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like If you were in a really hot market and the prices were going up, what that would essentially do is allow you to participate in the upside of the home value, right? You're, you're going to participate if the home value goes up, but the amount of principal that you're going to pay off in each mortgage payment, especially early in the loan, is just going to be nothing. It's going to be negligible what you're actually paying off just because of the way the amortization schedule looks. I've shown that amortization schedule to several first-time home buyers, and they are shocked at how little principal they're paying down, especially in the first even five years of a loan. 
And that's just looking at a 30-year. I mean, even a 30-year loan, you're not going to pay that much principal down early into the window if you're planning on being outside of the house in the next five to seven years. And so I think that's why certainly at today's interest rates and with what's going on, if you're not planning to be in the house for 10 years, I really wouldn't buy a home right now. I think 10 years is kind of my threshold for when it makes sense and why it makes sense to be in the home. If you think it's only going to be three, four, five years, I just think you're better off renting. Yeah, I think the glory of home ownership is greatly oversold to a lot of people. Now, there are some places where it's great to own property and places like we're fortunate enough to live in the D.C. area where we have some of the largest employers in the world. And I think that keeps property values afloat. Uh, But that's not true everywhere. You know, home values are very very much uh, dependent on the areas you live in and and the economy. Yeah, the the non-conforming thing is interesting. And uh, I don't know if non-conforming loans can still be repackaged and sold, but they certainly can't be repackaged and sold through the traditional methods. Like with what normally happens, they go to Fannie and Freddie. Fannie and Freddie bundles them up because they've got kind of all these homogenous loans that, that basically spread risk for an investor, and then they resell them in the secondary market. With a non-conforming loan, they don't get those channels. And so those banks are likely holding the loan on their books. Or if they're selling it, they're going to be selling it to like a, a unique investor group. Um, and so when I like when I worked at Morgan Stanley, they would do some of that business. Um, and I remember actually taking one out myself on a condo that I was planning on being out of in a few years. And I did an interest-only loan. I did a five-year interest-only. And people looked at me like I had three heads what I actually had was a plan. But in any case, that was a non-conforming loan. And I think at the time, Morgan Stanley just had to hold that on their books. But they're a bank and they can do that, right? They had the capital. And for them, that's a nice floating rate loan where they're going to guarantee that low interest rate for five years. And then it was going to float after that. So for their risk management, that probably looked pretty fantastic at the time. And so you know, they were kind of building in some security in that way. I'm out of that property and that loan now. But that's kind of how those would work is generally a bank that has some capital or has investors that are looking to invest in kind of a niche product versus the off the rack sort of MBS stuff. I do think there are some interesting things you can do um, when you're evaluating loan options nowadays. And people tend to fall into the camp of the 30-year fixed rate mortgage is just the standard. And I think default to that. But depending on the environment we're in or your personal financial situation, maybe there's something else you can look at like interest only, depending on your goals, or an adjustable rate mortgage, depending on your goals? I would bet a lot more people are in adjustable rates right now, just because the rates have gone up, and that's been the cheaper way to get into a house. I would guess that a lot more of those are being sold. And I don't have that data, but that that would not shock me to hear it right now. I also hear a lot nowadays that the expectation is mortgage rates are going to go down pretty soon. So if you're in an adjustable rate mortgage, that gives you the benefit of floating down without the frictional costs of having to refinance. And I famously refinanced a ton in the house I'm in now. But if you don't have to go through that added expense to get the lower rate, that's a win. Yeah. yeah it just depends how long they're going to stay low when they right. drop, right? If you're, if you're going to be in the home for a long period of time, if you see them drop, that might make sense to refinance into something and fix that rate lower even if it means paying a little bit more in the short term. Now, my wife, who's a realtor, told me about something interesting this morning where she is seeing new builders offering loans that do the opposite. They 
they're giving you a grace period as you purchase your home with, I don't know if it's a lower rate or lower monthly payments that ramp up over a period of a few years with the idea of making housing more affordable to people. Uh, but the thought of that really scared me too, because if you're budgeting around a low mortgage that magically goes up a few years down the road, you don't know what situation you're going to be in at that point and whether that home will be affordable in the future. I mean, it depends how much it's going up, right? If you're going to be a renter, you kind of have to have that expectation as well that your payment's going to go up over time. Now, as a renter, I would expect that those payments are going to go up around the rate of inflation, right? Certainly, I wouldn't expect more than 3 to 4% a year in terms of the increases in an average year. So yeah, if the payment's going to like double, then certainly you shouldn't be budgeting for that low payment. If you're going to be doing a plan and kind of creating that, maybe you say, okay, well, when the payment adjusts to its high amount, maybe that's a little bit tight for me today, but it gives me some time to ramp my income up. Or if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm early in the life cycle, you know, it gets very situational in those cases on whether or not that would make sense. But I would be budgeting to the higher number, not the low one. Yeah, absolutely. And to whatever extent you can save the money that you would otherwise be paying just to phantom pay that higher mortgage rate anyway, I think that's the best way to approach kind of any major purchase, actually. So if you're evaluating whether you can afford a new car or buy a new property, just pretend to pay that extra cost anyway. Just pay it to yourself and see if you can do it. It always shocks me that people don't try that, right? When when people go, well, can I afford this payment? I'm like, I don't know. Try it, right? I mean, just like literally... Act as if that's your payment. Set that amount of money aside every month. And can you still live on what you've got left? Because you're going to find out quickly, right? And and I think sometimes people just want the permission to, to spend that money when they ask the question. But the easiest way to know if your budget can absorb it is to try it. Yeah. And it's riskless. Because if you, if you can't, the money is still there. You it's can saved. undo that decision. Yeah. yeah exactly. it's, it's both protecting you and testing you at the same time. Absolutely. All right, Dan, last thing we're going to talk about. I think you and I were both embarrassed that we didn't know this when it came across our desks. And uh, I'm willing to admit that publicly to all of you that I did not know that this existed in its current form. But let's talk about the pass-through entity tax and what you can do. Now, this relates really to the SALT caps. We've talked about on our show that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that ends at the end of 2025 unless... Congress decides to extend it or amend it or whatever. But those tax laws are going to sunset. There were a lot of things in that Tax Cut and Jobs Act that benefited taxpayers. There was lowering of rates. There was simplification of rates. There was the QBI deduction for businesses. But the thing that hurt a lot of taxpayers, especially in high-tax states, was called the SALT cap, state and local tax. SALT was limited to... $10,000 deducted from your federal taxes each year. That means for a lot of people, deducting their state and local taxes is no longer the big benefit that it used to be. And states have been building a workaround and have really built a workaround. And I didn't know about it. Yeah. So I think at this point, it's over 30 states that have codified into law the process of doing this. So this strategy really benefits you if you have a pass through entity. And what it allows you to do. And, and I'm going to caveat all of this by saying you should speak with your tax preparer or tax advisor to make sure, A, that you qualify, B, that you understand it properly, and C, that it makes sense for you to do. All right. With those disclosures out of the way, this rule allows you to pay state taxes and sometimes local taxes 
through your pass-through entity. Why would you do this? Well, if you can take pay those taxes through your business, deduct them from your business profits, then the your attributable portion of business income is lower. So essentially, you're getting a workaround to getting a a federal tax deduction for having paid those taxes through the business. What the state is then going to do in turn is credit those taxes that were paid to your personal tax liability. So you don't have to double pay it. The state is getting their money. The federal government is kind of being screwed out of a little bit of their money. But this is a great tool for taxpayers who have passed through entity. And to my surprise, this has been blessed by the federal government. There was an IRS ruling that basically said this was kosher that came out relatively recently. But states have been implementing these kinds of rules since, I believe, almost as soon as the Tax Cut and Jobs Act passed because they knew that they were going to have taxpayers who were up in arms about the limited deductions. Uh, Unfortunately, this only benefits people if you have a pass-through entity, business owners, and probably you know, people who are, who are better off, but um, still something that's worth knowing about. Yeah. So this is anybody that's got an LLC, an S-corp, whether that's a side hustle or not, if you've got a business that passes through profits to you, this is a pretty nice thing to be able to take advantage of. And uh, and the thing that it really allows you to do is still benefit from those taxes that you're going to have to pay, even if you're taking the standard deduction, right? Yeah. Because you can still do this and take the standard deduction it's not like you're lowering the ability to kind of deal with those salt benefits in, in most cases, right? Because for a lot of people, that salt cap means the standard deduction is going to apply in a lot of cases. You got to have a ton of mortgage interest to kind of get above that or a ton of charitable gifting that's going to get you above that where it still makes sense to itemize. So in a world where most of us are filing the standard deduction, that's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for... For a lot of people, this is going to mean thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars of tax savings if this applies to you. Now, the one spot that lowering business profit, interestingly, came back to bite me was 2020. So in 2019, I'll I'll just share this story because I think it was funny. For my side hustle business, I bought a cargo van. I deducted the entire thing using the, the 179 deduction. And I lowered the business profit that year. And then when the PPP loans came out the following year to help businesses that were struggling, and, and that, that side hustle was, the PPP loans were based on business profit. So I had kind of just manually lowered the business profit by adding this massive expense. And then there was a government benefit that would have been based on that higher profit number if I hadn't done it. So some of these things, you can lower business profit and then ultimately... Uh, get kicked for it. I think I still made the right decision at the time, but uh, I remember being very frustrated of like, oh, this is the year I decided to buy a van and you know, thought I was being so tax savvy by lowering the taxes that year and then just got killed for it. There's so many games you have to play as a business owner. The other thing is, right, we're incentivized to lower our income to, sh- to pay less taxes, right? We don't want to give extra money to the government if we don't have to. I just want to give whatever I absolutely have to give them and call it. Right. You just want to be right. I, I, I don't want to do anything illegal. Just be right. Just be correct. Exactly. So we find deductions where we can. However, if you're going to go for a loan somewhere, taking those deductions can impact you too, because now you're showing lower income. So when your mortgage lender says, you want to buy this house, let's see the tax returns. 
you're going to show lower numbers than perhaps you needed to and might miss on qualifying something that you wanted to purchase. Same thing happens with social security, because if you're trying to lower your self-employed income, which self-employed people get crushed when they have to go pay those self-employment taxes, the self-employment tax is basically that as a single operator, as, as a self-employed person, you have to pay both your side, the employee side of FICA taxes, that's social security and Medicare, as well as the employer side. So for people with a W-2 income, I think sometimes they forget that the employer pays the other half. So that's 7% of your salary as a W-2 person that the employer is paying for you. That comes out when you're a self-employed person. Well, if you lower that, if you've done everything you can to keep that really low, well, the amount of income that you're showing for Social Security is lower, and then your ultimate benefit can be lower. It's really tough to take all of that into account, but I think that's why we always beat the drum on being strategic about taxes, not just trying to lower them at all costs. Yeah, exactly. It shouldn't be something you look at only in one year as a bubble. You should have a tax strategy that spans longer periods of time. All right. Well, that brought us full circle for today. We hope that you got something out of our discussion looking at the interest rate on your mortgage, how to think about it, as well as a tax strategy that you can consider if you're a business owner. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for the show. We'll be back next week with another one. Oh,